Before we open up our Bibles and listen together to God's word, let's pray. Father, please meet us here in your word and speak to us. And please help me to serve your people well. Please quiet any distractions, any distracting thoughts in our minds. Tune our hearts to you. Give us ears that hear and eyes that see and soft hearts that will receive your word. Please help us and guide us and speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can find in your Bibles Mark chapter 6. We're going to be studying Mark chapter 6 verses 7 through 13 today. As you find Mark chapter 6 in your Bible or the Bible from the pew in front of you, um, I want us to, to begin under the, the big banner, the big truth that what you believe about Jesus Christ is the most important thing about you. What you believe about Jesus Christ is the most important thing about you. It determines everything else. It determines how you live your life in this world. It determines how, uh, what's going to happen to you after your life in this world. It determines how you relate to God. It determines how you relate to others. It determines how you relate to your sin issues in your life and your struggles and your needs. Everything hinges on your belief in Jesus Christ. So let's all begin on that same playing field as we read this passage together. Another uh, segment in Jesus' life as we work our way through Mark. We're going to read Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. You can remain seated this week and just follow along and listen along as we read. And he, meaning Jesus, called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority Over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaiming that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is our passage for this morning. It comes right after last week's passage uh, when we saw Jesus go back to his hometown and his people from home who were most familiar with him rejected him. Then he went about the villages teaching, and now in this passage he calls his twelve to them and sends them out to proclaim the news as well. The first thing I want you to notice in this passage is something we've talked about before, but is so vitally important that we need to revisit it again, because Mark revisits it again. And that's the difference between the crowd and the called. I have a little chart for you here. Many people in Mark's gospel 
And I suspect many people in many of our churches, including Doolin's Grove, experience Christianity in the same way that we experience March Madness. As spectators. We watch, we sit in the stands, but we're not out on the court, engaged, playing. This passage comes after a little over five chapters of Jesus out there publicly ministering and huge swarms of crowds crushing around him and following him. But here, when he gets down to business and he's going to start sending out people, he just calls his twelve. All those crowds who had come and traveled to be near them, I assume, are not here during this. They've just gone home. So I just want to point out three aspects of contrast between the crowd and the call so we can determine where we stand here. So through Mark, we see the crowd is in control of their own relationship with Jesus. They decide when they're going to come and hear him teach and when they're going to come and see him minister to people and when they're going to go home. They're in control. To them, Jesus is like an appliance in your kitchen. Until you go in there and push the button, it sits there inanimate and idle. Now, the called, on the other hand, are controlled by Jesus himself. Jesus is in the driver's seat of the relationship with the called. Here in verse 7, he called the twelve and began to send them out. He calls, they come, he sends, they go. He's the one in, in control of the relationship. Another point of contrast I want to mention is in authority. We've seen in Mark over and over again that Jesus was astoundingly authoritative. When he taught, people were shocked and amazed because of his authority. And they marveled at his authority. But most of those people marveled at it and then went home. Jesus' disciples received Jesus' authority. Back in verse 7, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. We'll return to the unclean spirits part because I know that's always an attention grabber. But for now, just notice, the called actually receive authority from Jesus. They don't just witness it. And the third thing is that they are charged with a task. They are sent out. The crowds come and they hear Jesus' teaching and then they go home. The called he sends out on mission for him. So let's look at the mission on which they're sent. Verses 8 and 9. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Very specific instructions given here. Um, we need to, to put the pause on the sermon for a second and just remember how to read the Bible for a minute. Um, it can be really tempting to read verses 8 and 9 where he gives them these very specific instructions about what to wear and how to go and how to leave and read those into our own life like that's our assignment as well. But that's an improper way to read this passage. This was an event in history. This is a recording of something that happened, a conversation between Jesus and his, his people at a certain point in time. So this passage is not a command 
for each one of you to go out two by two and not take your wallet or your car keys and only wear an undershirt and some flip-flops. It's not, that's not the way Jesus meant this. This was a one-point-in-time um, assignment for these people. And I'll prove it to you. In Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 35, this is later in Jesus' ministry with the apostles. He says, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? He's referring back to what we just read. And they said, Nothing. And he said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. And then he goes on to explain why, but you get the idea. One passage is a specific mission. He's telling them to go in this way. And then in Luke 22, it's a different kind of mission. So he's telling them to go in a different way. Sometimes God will send you as his followers out with very little provision. Sometimes he'll instruct you to make a great deal of provision. Sometimes he might send you out in a pair of two. Sometimes he might send you out as one or as a family or as a small group or as a church. Sometimes he might send you and sometimes he might tell you to stay put. A lot of Christians aren't sent ones. Some in the church are apostles, which means sent ones. And some are teachers and some are administrators and some are helpers. So I just don't want you to read this and feel pressure like, well, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to leave and go do these things. I don't think that's the intention of the passage. I think mainly Mark is contrasting different types of people's response to Jesus. Specifically, the crowds that ignore him and the called that follow him. So we need to ask ourselves this morning, which one are we? Are we crowd or are we called? Okay, that's the first thing I want you to notice. The second thing and the last thing I want you to notice is the message and the ministry of his people in verses 12 and 13. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Okay, they went out following Jesus' instructions with a very simple message, repent. How many of you have heard the word repent, heard repentance preached, taught, seen it in the Bible? Okay, some of us, most of us. I have taught you before that to repent means to do an about face, to be going one direction and turn and go the other direction. Um, but the Lord has been teaching me this week especially that repentance is a, a fuller idea than just that. Um, literally translated, repent just means to change your mind. It's the word, the prefix for change and the word for think click together. Change your thinking, change your mind. Now, interesting to note here, the disciples went out telling people they need to repent before Jesus died on the cross for our sins, before he was buried, before he rose again. So usually when I think of repentance, I think of you need to turn from your sin to Jesus, trusting in his death for you. But the disciples didn't yet understand that Jesus was going to die. So, I, I spent a lot of time this week trying to figure out what they meant by repent. Um, I'm not going to spend as much time here explaining it, but the idea of repentance can be quite confusing. And I think to help clarify, I just want to explain to you two different types of repentance. 
that you'll find in the Bible. I've got another handy chart for you here. Okay, the first type is a changing of your mind in regard to your belief about Jesus Christ. Okay, this is a repentance of a person who has never put their faith in Jesus, who is trusting in, you know, whatever idols of the day they may be, or trusting in their own works to do good, to be accepted by God. The first type of repentance, what I believe these disciples were preaching is, change your mind about Jesus. I think these disciples were going, these disciples were going about to villages that had heard about Jesus and possibly many who had been in the crowds and had dismissed him. And they're saying, change your mind. Repent, the kingdom is at hand and this is your king. Change your mind about your belief about Jesus Christ. This is repentance that leads to salvation. And like a wedding, it happens once. I had the the privilege of meeting with Clinton Casey here who will be getting married very soon. And we talk, there's two things we talk about, the wedding and the marriage. They're connected, but they're not the exact same thing. So this first type of repentance, type A repentance, is changing your belief about Jesus Christ, putting your faith in him, believing in him, being saved. Okay, so one time thing, it's like your wedding. But then there's a type B repentance, a type two. This is where you change your mind about your behavior, This is a type of repentance that's lived out every day by Christians who have already repented about their belief in Jesus Christ. This is where you put off the old sinful behaviors and you put on the new good behaviors. This is the type of repentance that leads to sanctification. This is more like the marriage. Now, the reason I point all this out to you is that if we get confused about the types, we can get locked into a legalistic religion that will damn us. If we think that we are saved because we turn from our sins, period, we miss salvation because we miss Jesus. If I just tell you turn from your sins, that's only telling you what to escape from. It's not telling you what to escape to. So you could turn from your sin to all other sorts of other things, but not Jesus. You could turn from your sin to self-discipline. And start doing better, but still miss salvation in Jesus. It's like me trying to invite you to meet me at a restaurant. And the only directions I give you are just leave your house and get away from your house. Well, you'll leave the house, but you won't make it to the restaurant. And I fear that many in our churches are stuck in the second type of repentance. And they've missed the first type of repentance. And they're trying to change behavior and never reaching salvation in Jesus Christ. I want to make sure I say this carefully so I don't, I don't turn into a heretic before your eyes. But you're not saved by turning from your sins. You're saved by turning to Jesus Christ. Now, yes, you will be turning from sins as well. But if you don't turn to Jesus Christ, you miss everything. So the message the disciples brought is repent. So the message that I feel led to bring to you is repent. Now, there may be some of you who have never repented, changed your mind about your belief in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've always believed Jesus to be a good, moral, religious, historical figure to be appreciated and observed. 
but not the one way, the one truth, the one life, the one means for salvation from sin. And if that is you, I proclaim to you that you need to repent. You need to change your thinking about Jesus. Now, others of you, I feel that I need to deliver the message, repent in the second sense. Thus, those of you who have changed your mind, you do believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. But you've allowed sins to grow up in and entangle around your life that you need to turn from. And the good news is you can because you can turn from them to Jesus. You don't just have to try to be better. But don't try to be married without the wedding. Don't try to be sanctified without salvation. Don't try to change your behavior without changing your belief about Jesus Christ. It doesn't work. It leads to confusion, heartache, ultimately damnation because you're not saved by how good you repent of your bad behavior. You're saved by belief in Jesus Christ alone. Are we all clear on that? And finally, the last thing I want to point out to you is verse 13. So in verse 12, we see they went out proclaiming that people should repent. And then in verse 13, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Their main mission was to go and proclaim that people needed to repent. And while they did that, they cast out many demons and healed many sick people. Now, let's not get hung up on the unclean spirits part. We've talked about that a lot in Mark. And, you know, I know that's always very interesting. Yes, I do believe there are unclean spirits. Yes, the Bible teaches that uh, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, the spiritual forces of darkness. No, I don't believe that it's the same today as it was during Jesus' time. I don't think that you should expect to be casting out a lot of demons. You know, it seems historically and biblically that demonic activity increases with the intensity of Jesus's activity. So it makes sense that while Jesus was on earth in physical forms, that demons were the loudest and the most aggressive. Okay. It's sort of like, um, snakes, you know, when they when it's in season, when it's hot, you'll see a lot more activity among them. But when it's cold, they're a lot more dormant. I think they're a little bit more dormant now, a little bit more subtle now, but it is a factor. But Jesus' people have authority over them, so we don't need to be afraid or overly concerned. Just aware. Let's also not get distracted by them anointing with oil those who were sick and healing them. Um, It was probably something like olive oil. It wasn't magical. Um, In fact, oil was used a lot medicinally, not in a miraculous way at all, but just as a medicine for people. So it could have been in that sense. It was also a common symbol for the work of the Holy Spirit in healing people. So it could have been also used in a symbolic sense. Um, But those aren't the focus of the passage, so let's not get sidetracked on those things. The main point is, they went out to tell people to repent while being helpful. Their, Their full mission wasn't just to be helpful. Their mission was to tell people to repent. But they were helpful all the while because they do love people and they've been given power to help people. And that's sort of how we operate as a church, too. Our main mission is to love God and people by making disciples. And along the way, we do want to be as helpful as possible to people. But just like repentance, we don't want to lift being helpful up above making disciples. Okay, so the the main idea 
is that Jesus at this stage of ministry is calling people to repent. So I want to close just asking you a few questions and then we'll pray. First question, are you in the crowd or are you among the called? Are you sitting in the stands watching or are you on the court? Have you been brought under Jesus' command as, as Lord? Have you been authorized and gifted for ministry and sent as a part of his mission? Have you repented in the sense that you've changed your mind about your belief about Jesus Christ? Or have you gotten swept into a, a momentum of religiosity and churchiness and morality and attempts to change your behavior? And then finally, those of you who are Christians who do believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, is there anything in your life of which you need to repent of? Any sins of the old man that you need to just set aside? And go to Jesus and be forgiven and cleansed and changed. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask that if there is anyone among us today that needs to repent and turn to Jesus and believe in him as their savior, that you would make that happen. If there's anyone among us who is a believer with sin in their life that they have nurtured and hidden and allowed that needs to repent, that you would make that plain to them and make that happen. And may we all be the called. May none of us be the crowd. In Jesus' name, amen.